The title of our message uh, this morning is, It is Enough. It is Enough. From my consecration message tonight at 5.30, I'm going to be sharing the rest of my testimony. Um, I'll hold the title for now. But essentially from there, I'll explain the rest of how the Lord pretty much brought me in and some of my experiences as I have made a decision to follow Christ, been in jail and all kind of other crazy stories. So um, if you're interested in knowing how Jesus can save a person who was serving the devil, then you'll be here at 5.30 tonight. And I can share with you one last time how the Lord has brought me to where I am today. Let's pray. Mighty God, everlasting Father, we are grateful for the gift of life. We come before you with no other argument but our great need. And you told the Apostle Peter when he answered to you that you were the Christ, the Son of the living God, you said that flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And so, Father, we understand that as we approach the Word of God, which is able to make us wise unto salvation, we cannot understand spiritual things without the Spirit of God. That we need you, Lord, to open thou our eyes, that you might reveal unto us the truth as it is in Jesus, and that that truth, when it comes, it would have a sanctifying power over our lives. We would not live the same. And so this morning, we ask one more time, you would use this man, which is but dust in your sight, and breathe upon me breath of God, and fill me with life anew. We ask these things so that you would be glorified, so that Jesus can be seen, and so that your people can be blessed and changed to fulfill the purpose that you have for their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is enough. I have found in just some of my opportunities to serve in secular environments for ministry that one of the questions that seems to emerge on secular campuses, out in secular environments in the workplace, is this idea of how does a person come to the decision to have faith in God or His Word. And so they, I remember talking to a young lady who was atheist from China at the University of Michigan. And she said, you know, this whole concept of God is very interesting to me. It's very foreign to Chinese culture. And so as you're talking about God like he's right here, you, you talk about Jesus as if you were just visiting with him in the morning. I say, I was. But how do you know? You can't see him. You don't hear him. He doesn't leave sticky notes on your desk. He doesn't send you emails. And so she said, you know, if I was sleeping here in my dorm room and all of a sudden I saw a bright light appear in my window and this beautifully ebullient figure full of light and glory came and said, Christina, I am Jesus, the one that Sebastian's been talking to you about. 
And she said, maybe then I would consider that to be sufficient evidence. I would say, okay, it's enough. And I will believe in God. And I looked and I said, Christina, let me ask you a question. Are you telling me? Are you telling me that if this figure happened, if this presence came into your room, in your dorm, and you're like, oh, now I know that he exists because I've seen him, are you telling me that you believe everything you see? She said, no, I don't believe everything I see. So how do I know that when that figure appears to you, all of a sudden, next morning, you're like, you know, it's, I ate pizza really late. Maybe it was just a dream. You know, I had a little too much ice cream at the freshman cafeteria. So maybe, you know, I'm having visions and dreams and I was hypoglycemic. All these other excuses. And so as I began to explain, I began to explain to her that faith rests upon evidence, not demonstration. I don't believe in Jesus because I have seen him. I believe because there is evidence that is compelling that Jesus does exist. We understand this in the legal setting. When you go to a court of law, you know what they say, right? That you can be proved to be innocent beyond a reasonable doubt. Are you following me? Even in the court of law, they say this man has been found guilty and you can prove. And in America, God, God be praised, we are innocent till proven guilty. And they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Now follow this. They didn't say beyond no doubt. They said you have to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. And there are many people who doubt God, who doubt the word of God as being inspired, who doubt the truth, not because there is no room for doubt, but because they doubt it beyond a reasonable doubt. Are you following what I'm saying? The way that they are doubting is not reasonable. It's not because there's no evidence. Even in our everyday lives, we make all kinds of decisions based upon evidence. For a student who was considering enrolling at Southern Adventist University when they came and visited the beautiful plush campus, they were gathering evidence as to why they should come. And sometimes, the evidence may lead in a direction that when we come, we find that it's not the way that we were hoping it would be. So because it says it is Southern Adventist University, my assumption as a parent, my assumption as a student, based upon the evidence in the name, based upon the evidence that they have to go to chapel or they have to go to convocation credits or vespers, that this is a campus that is heavily spiritual. But that student comes and they may not find that to be so everywhere on campus. And you say, well, I thought this was an Adventist university. I thought that I would find these kind of things here. And for you, you decided that the fact that it's an Adventist university, the fact that you have to go to Vespers, the fact that there's convocation credit in chapel, that was enough evidence for you. Even in relationships, we do the same thing. Say, well, the person is externally pleasing to my sight. And some people, it is enough. It's enough for them. And we find that deep somewhere in the human experience, there is a dichotomy. There is a split that happens. That for some reason, when it comes down to temptation, when it comes down to sin, we don't need a lot of evidence. 
We don't need a lot of evidence to say, you know what, this thing's going to be really pleasing. This thing's going to be really good for my soul. And it makes me wonder sometimes, how come we need little evidence to sin, but so much evidence to accept the promises of God? Jesus says, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And we'll go into situations and we'll begin to collapse and fall apart as if God has abandoned us. But the devil comes and he says, hey, you see that young lady over there? You see that young man? I know you didn't study for this exam and we're like, yeah, you know, he presents you this much evidence and we're running with the devil into some mess. It is enough. I want to tell you two stories. There's so many stories that came out of 9-11 that have fascinated me because I was in the Marine Corps when 9-11 happened. I remember sitting in my student center at college. I joined the reserve so I could go back to school. And I was right before my economics class. And I remember watching the television and the news flashed on and I saw the plane hit the building. And in my mind, I knew I was going to get a call from my commanding officer. I was like, whoa, this is bad. And sure enough, within two hours, the school was shut down. I was in Atlanta. They said, hey, Atlanta has a CDC. We don't know if there's going to be a terrorist attack. And so over the years, since I've become a Christian, I was very interested in all the stories that surrounded September 11th. And there are two that have really caught my attention. And the first one is this. It was about a man who, was, who had died in the destruction of the Twin Towers. And just a week before, he had proposed to his girlfriend who was living in California. He had asked her to marry him. And like a good, wise young lady, she didn't just say yes on the spot. She, she put the brother his feet to the fire. She said, let me think about it. <laughs> that was probably a hard week for him. So she went back to California and she was thinking about it. And late at night on September 10th, she had come to a decision, called all her girlfriends. She said, you know, I think this is the one. I think we're going to get married. Her friends were excited. She says, well, how are you going to let him know? She says, well, what I'm going to do is leave a message. I'm going to fly to New York to go see him. Early in the morning on September 11th, about 8 a.m., she left a voicemail at his office phone in the Twin Towers. He came to work that day, but shortly after 9 a.m., we know what happened. And the Later on that day, she found out that the man finally that she thought she could spend the rest of her life with had lost his life in a terrorist attack. And the question then was raised in her mind, where was God when this situation came up? At the same token, there was another story that even more fascinates me. And this story is about an elderly woman who was in the building after it got hit. And the firemen were up in the building and they were trying to walk around and said, ma'am, we got to get out of this building. This thing is going to collapse. And she had arthritis to a very severe degree. And so they were walking her down the stairs. 
and they were coming down. One flight, two flights, floor number nine, floor number eight, and floor number seven, and she sat down in weariness in a burning building. And the firemen are like, ma'am, you have to get up. We have to get out of this building. She says, I can't. My bones are hurting me too bad. They said, ma'am, we can carry you. She said, no, it'll hurt too bad for you to carry me. So they said, okay, ma'am, they let her rest. The building is burning. She finally says, okay, I can get up. They go down floor number seven, floor number six, floor number five, floor number four. She sits down again. This is on September 11th. While you and I were watching the news, that woman and those firemen were in the stairwell of the building. And here again, they said, ma'am, please get up. She says, I just can't go on. I just can't make it. They said, ma'am, please. And within two minutes of her sitting on the stairwell, every floor below them collapsed. And the woman and the fireman made it out without a scratch. And the fireman told the cameras, he said, <laughs> he said, if that woman had listened to us and we went down to floor number three, we would have died. Because the floor above us and every other thing would have collapsed on top of us. But because she stopped at the fourth floor, because she stopped at the fourth floor, we have made it out alive. And the woman said, these were my angels to come to save me. And the farmer said, no, she was an angel from God to stop us, to stop on the fourth floor. And God used the arthritis. And the question then came up, was God near or was God far in September 11th? Who do you thank for stopping at the fourth floor? And people say, what then is the issue? And so as the theological talk was emerging at that time, they said, this is what theologians call the hiddenness of God. How come God doesn't make it so obvious that he exists? How come God doesn't make it so obvious that he's participating in your life? You're in the exam. You're in this frenzy. You're in a situation of distress or hopefulness. And we read all the time that God is near unto them. But how come he doesn't make it more obvious, they say? I want to share with you a passage from the Word of God that I believe speaks to this issue in a very profound and direct way. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. It is enough. Luke, chapter 16. When you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say have mercy. Nobody needs mercy. Luke 16, verse 19. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I know many of us as Adventists dread this passage because they try to use it to justify life after death. You don't have to be afraid. The Bible is clear. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died 
and was buried. Now I want you to follow the situation here. It was common in those days that if you were a wealthy man, and the Bible says this man was clothed in purple and fine linen, so we can imagine he was a very wealthy man. He dressed quite well. He had the best clothes. And he fared sumptuously. So when I read that word, I'm thinking maybe he's a little overweight. Fared sumptuously. And the Bible says every day. So it was common that when you saw a person who was really prospering and you saw a person that was really poor, they would lay him at the gate of the wealthy person so that whenever he came in or out of his house, he could give something to the beggar. We find the same experience in Acts chapter 3 with the man who was lame, laid at the gate of the temple. This was a common experience. And the understanding was because God has blessed you with great wealth, you can provide for this beggar. And the Bible says, despite the fact that Lazarus was there begging, poor, in complete poverty and physical illness, and the rich man was faring sumptuously, they both had the same fate. They both died. This life is not all. So whether you're doing well, whether you're doing badly, there's one thing that's coming that does not care rich or poor, and that's death. And as a result of this, the Bible says in verse 23 that in hell, that is the word Hades in the Greek, the grave, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, this is the rich man, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And notice this next verse. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Now notice this. The second element in the parable. First element in the parable is the lifetime. And there are certain people who are doing well externally in the lifetime. There are certain people who are doing poverishly in the lifetime. And now it's afterlife. Now it's what happens when life is over. And now, rich man, you are in torment. And this was based upon how you conducted your life. And the whole point of the second element of this parable is once life is over, once you die, once the grave comes, there is no change. Your destiny is fixed. Based upon what you did in your lifetime, there's no more opportunities then. There's no opportunity to do more for God. There's no more opportunities to do more for the Lazarus in your life. And the question is, who has Jesus laid at your gates? You come to SAU, God has laid College Dale at your gates. God has laid Chattanooga at your gates. And we come faring sumptuously opportunities to study the Word of God. 
We come to fare sumptuously with fellowship with individuals who are not trying to cut you down or rob you or take your wife. And he says, Lazarus was laid at your gates, but there's going to come a time. There's going to come a time where you can do no more, where there will be a great gulf fixed and the destiny is set based upon how you live this life. And it won't be how much financial aid you got. It won't be whether you got that grant or whether you got this scholarship. The difference shall be made by how you live this life. What did you do with Lazarus when he was laid at your gates? And here we are faring sumptuously. But then the crucial part of the parable arrives. I want you to notice with me what it says. Verse 27. The Bible says this, Then he said, I pray thee, therefore. That means, okay, since I can't change my situation, since you can't send Lazarus to soften my experience and my torment, I pray you, therefore, Father Abraham, he says, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now I want you to follow this. The rich man, while he's in torment, understands that his situation is fixed. Now he looks and he says, Okay, Abraham, I know that I have five brothers who are not ready for the afterlife. Maybe you have some family members too. Maybe you have a mother or a father, a sibling, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, whatever the case may be, there's someone in your life that is not ready for the afterlife. I know one person that I can for sure know without the shadow of a doubt, and my mother is not ready to die. And I want you to ask yourself the question, who are you most afraid of losing in your life? Who are you most afraid of dying in your life? Is it a person that you are receiving blessings from, or is it a person that you know does not know Jesus? When I think about people dying, like Michael Jackson, and people talk about the death of Michael Jackson, it was such a big deal, he did such amount of good, I said the only question that rings in my heart when Michael Jackson is, does he know Jesus when he died? No amens. That's the only question a seven-day Adventist young person is concerned about for another life, whether he be famous or whether he be unknown. And if you read through the obituaries and you ask yourself, did he know Jesus or not? And the rich man says, I have five brothers that aren't ready, Abraham. Can you send Lazarus? And Abraham's response is, they have Moses and the prophets. What he was saying was, they have the word of God. And he says, let them hear them. You see, one of my great burdens as a youth in ministry is you travel around, you go to local churches, you go to conferences, youth congresses, you know, Northeast Youth Congress, whatever the case may be, and all of a sudden we want them to hear everybody but the Word of God. 
Let's put on Christian contemporary movement. Let's quote this preacher. Let's put on this video for them. And Jesus tells us this morning, just let them hear the word of God. Give young people a chance to make a decision whether they want biblical Christianity or the progressive Christianity. The message is the same, just as powerful. It changed my life, it will change someone else's life. No one brought a praise band to convert me. There was no gospel choir that could reach me. Simply the word of God. And we're living in a time where we want people to hear everything but the word of God. And so the Bible says, let them hear them. Don't try to send any signs. Don't try to work any miracles. Don't try to bring this other stuff. Just let them hear the word of God. No more entertainment. Put down the gospel clowns and the gospel puppets. Calm down on the music. Music comes from the word of God. It prepares the heart for the word of God, but it is not the word of God. It didn't say when Jesus was born on this earth that soprano, alto, tenor, and bass became flesh and dwelt among us. Can you say amen? Amen. It didn't say that. It said the word, which was in the beginning with God, became flesh. Let them hear them. If you are a youth leader, if you are a pastor, If you are an individual that's leading a Bible study, a Bible class, a theology section, let them hear the word of God, Moses and the prophets. And that is enough, Abraham says. They don't need any other evidence. It's enough to prepare the soul for the afterlife. But it gets better. Verse 29, he says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the, and the rich man says, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, and he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You see, Abraham is looking at him and he says, No, the word of God is enough. And we look at this situation, you talk about great faith. You talk about a person who really loves God, who really trusts God, is a person who takes God at his word. You see, when we got friendships and we have a close friend, if my friend says, Sebastian, I will be there to pick you up at 9 a.m. Because he is my friend, I don't question his word. I don't need to see the keys. I don't need to see if you have a car. I don't need to see... Whether you have a license or not, all I know is because I know you. You're my friend and I trust you. I will take you at your word. And we are living in a time where we have people who honestly believe, like Bertrand Russell, the famed atheist, who when he was being debated asked a question. He said, Mr. Russell, as an atheist, if you went to the grave and found out that God does exist, what would you say to him? And Bertrand Russell said, I would turn to him and say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. There is a philosopher at Yale University, as we're trying to start campus ministries there. His name is Norwood Russell Hansen. And after September 11th, he was criticizing the absence of God. 
And he said these words. I want to read it for you word for word. He says, suppose that on the next Tuesday morning, just after breakfast, all of us in this one world are knocked to our knees by a percussive and ear-shattering thunderclap. Snow swirls, leaves drop from the trees, the earth heaves and buckles, buildings topple and towers tumble, the sky is ablaze with an eerie silvery light. Just then as the people of this world look up, the heavens open, the clouds pull apart, revealing an unbelievably immense and radiant Zeus-like figure towering above us like a hundred Everests. He frowns darkly as lightning plays across the features of his Michelangeloid face. He then points down at me and exclaims for every man, woman, and child to hear, I have had quite enough of your too clever logic, chopping, and word watching in matters of theology. Be assured, Norman Russell Hansen, that I do most certainly exist, and then I would believe that God exists. Really? What are we talking about this morning? It is enough. We are told in Patriarchs and Prophets that every failure on the part of God's people is due to a lack of faith. Is due to a lack of faith. Now you say, what does that mean? What does that mean? Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to close here. Luke chapter 7. Connect the dots. We'll make an appeal and we'll close our service. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Are you there? Amen? All right. The Bible says this. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. That means Jesus was walking with them. And notice what the Bible says. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. For I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a what? Word, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth. To another, come, and he cometh. To my servant, do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and he turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Notice the situation. The centurion is at home. His servant is sick. 
He says, man, all of a sudden he heard about Jesus. And he says, hey, Jews, remember that synagogue I built for you guys? Could you ask this up-and-coming rabbi if he could come to my home and heal my servant? They said, sure. So they run up to Jesus. Hey, this guy, he built us a synagogue. They plead for him. Jesus is like, okay, I'll come heal. And he starts walking with them. And the Bible says when he was not far from the house, that means the centurion was sitting in his living room, he looked out the window, cracked the shade, and he saw Jesus coming to his house. And he told his friends, go outside and tell him, don't come in. How many people here today, if Jesus were outside your house, you would say, trouble not thyself? I want you to follow this. Jesus could have come in and was willing to come in to work a miracle. And the man said, I'm not worthy, and I know that you are a man under authority. And all you need to do is say it in a word. So that when we say the word of God says that you are accepted in the beloved, the true child of faith says, it is enough. Trouble not thyself. You don't need to appear to me, Jesus. A true child of faith says when it says, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. I don't care if there's a tornado warning. Trouble not thyself. You don't need to come. When they read the Bible and it says, all things work together for good. To them that love God and called according to his purpose, it is enough. I don't need any more evidence. And that's what the old hymn used to say. I need no other evidence. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and rose again for me. A true child of faith says, I don't need more than the word of God. So when I read it here, it is enough. And many of us are saying, Lord, should I marry this person? I want a sign. Lord, should I go into this field? I want a sign. Lord, should I go into this ministry or this ministry? Give me a sign. We're always looking for evidence beyond the evidence. When God says, I already gave you my word, how come you won't hear Moses and the prophets? I don't want that, Lord. I want demonstration. Faith doesn't rest upon demonstration. It rests upon evidence. And there's no way... There's no way, young friends, that we will see ourselves through a time of trouble such as, what, such as not since there ever was a nation if we don't have the kind of faith that takes God at his word. This is what's lacking. So people want to argue and break down and kind of articulate and flesh out. We have all these terms for the Bible as if it needs extra human explanation. If the Bible says don't do it, then it is enough. If the Bible says go do it, go ye therefore and preach, it is enough. Lord, I'm not a preacher. I didn't ask you to be a preacher. I asked you to go. And all my biddings are enablings. Because the power is not in you, it's in the word. That's why the man said you're a man under authority. Trouble not thyself. And so this morning, someone in some chaotic situation, some young lady dealing with a broken heart, some young man looking for direction in his life, you sit down, take the Bible, and say, Lord, it is enough. 
I don't care what other SAU students are doing. I don't care what other Oakwood students are doing. I don't care what other Adventist young people are doing. I will stand alone if need be. And people say, well, how can you be doing this? Everyone else, it is enough. I don't need any more. I don't need any more. And for many of us, we're always looking for more. And the unfortunate part of the story is Jesus did raise someone from the dead. And you know who crucified him? Sabbath keepers crucified Jesus. Tithe-paying members crucified Jesus. People who said the word of God is not enough. And for us this morning, it is time, it is time for us to take the Bible, take the promises, take the commands, if this is what the Bible says, and Lord, I want Jesus to marvel at me. You want to make Jesus turn his head? You want to make the God of the universe marvel? You want to make angels look confused? How come he accepts and he does not see? That's why when we get to heaven, we will sing a song they cannot sing. Angels don't know how to trust God without seeing him. They don't know how to follow him and say, how, do you, how did you know when you were on earth that that was God's voice talking to you? How do you know? I need no other evidence. I need no other plea. It is enough. And this is why many of us walk around with a feeble faith, can't bear trials, can't bear delay, can't bear inconvenience, can't bear my plans being derailed differently than what I had wanted them to be. And because of this, the failures of God's people continue. Continue. Where are you failing in your life? Where are you coming short of God's expectations in your life? See, we don't like to talk about brokenness in the church. Everyone wants to look like super Christian. We all want to look holy and spiritual. But the reality is, when we get home, you know what's waiting for you in the closet. You know what's waiting for you when nobody's watching. You know what's waiting for you here, in your mind, right before you go to sleep at night. And you got that nice pause where it's just you and the Spirit of God. What is coming to your mind? And this is why I believe our church lacks so much joy, because we're walking around guilt-ridden. Walking around depressed and discouraged. Looking for more evidence as if God's word is not enough. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Perhaps there is someone who has gone through an experience or is going through an experience 
where they're like, where was God? Or maybe you're going through something right now, and you're like, where is God? And it seems as if God has hidden himself in your life. But you know in your heart that the truth of the matter is you are the one that has been absent, not God. And there's some young person this morning that says, I'm ready to take the step of faith. I'm ready to stand up and say to God this morning, all I need is your word. I'm not waiting for a feeling, and I'm not waiting for an experience. I'm not waiting for any signs, Lord. I just want your word. I just want Jesus to say it. And once he says it in a word, I know it's true. And I'm going to trust you at your word. If that's your desire this morning, I want you to stand. I want you to stand. You're saying, Lord, I'm ready to take you at your word. But I want to make a very special appeal because I only have two minutes. And that appeal is for someone who's been going through some serious problems, emotionally unstable. Maybe you've been troubled in your spiritual life and you know that while you're going through this time, you're like, where was God? Where is God? And perhaps right now you're dealing with something. And you're like, I need special prayer because I feel as if God is hidden from me. I want you to come forward so we can pray for you. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. You feel as if God is hidden from you. I'm going through something this morning. And I feel like God's not around. He's hidden from me. Come. Come. And say, Lord, I'm ready to start accepting you at your word. Come. I don't care how far back you have to come. Come. Special prayer. Lord, I'm going through something. I'm going through something. And this is where we are as a church. We're all just doing just fine. No one likes to admit that they got problems that they have these feelings that God is not near. God doesn't keep his word. I want you to come. Say, Lord, I need special prayer. This is the time for us to come up and say, Lord, your word is enough. That's all I need is the promise. That's all I need is the promise. Are there others Just come. Just come. Come quickly. Don't wait. The Lord knew you were going through what you're going through. That's why he gave this message for you. Because God is saying this morning, I'm not hidden. I'm not hiding myself. I'm right there. Just take me at my word. Are there others? Please come. I can't hold this much longer. 
Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. If you're not coming, you better pray that that soul that's wrestling with the Holy Spirit comes. I'm going through something. I need God to show himself in my life. I'm going to take him at his word, claiming the promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are all standing in the presence of a holy God. Not because we find ourselves with such great faith, but Lord, we are standing because we want to learn to take you at your word. To look at the promises of God and say, it is enough. I'm not waiting on any other signs. Just simply the word is all I need. But Father, there are some that have come up for very special circumstances. And I just remember the prophet of the Lord writing. When you are discouraged... When you see, when it seems as if life goes hard, she said, take your Bible, bow down on your knees, and say, here, Lord, thy word is pledged. Throw all your weight upon his promises, and every one of them shall be fulfilled. It is our prayer, Lord, that these that have come forward, that these are they whom you can show yourself strong in their behalf. These are they that not only want the patience of the saints, but they want the faith of Jesus, who was willing to take his father at his word. Even though he couldn't see through the tomb, even though he couldn't see beyond the cross, he still took you at your word. And it is our prayer that these that have come in their troublous times, that they would be that centurion, that would cause you to marvel, Lord, and say, I have not seen such great faith of those who would come to take me at my word. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring order to their chaos, that you would bring, pre you would bring peace to the storm, and that you would calm the soul as it seeks communion with you. Bless us now, as we go into this divine worship service, may the conviction rest strong and give us courage to go forward even though we do not see and don't always understand. This is our prayer, and we ask that you'll help this to be our experience, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.